0: Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Nun Tedamadali. The Gumars continue continued to discuss a number of bright thought that were brought down with regards to bells. The issue that we were discussing was in the bright that it said Nitmu in if their clappers were taken out a tumatana lehen their bells still have a din of tumah. And the Gemara wants to know the Maichazu once you take the clapper out of the bell it's rendered useless and therefore why should have a din of tumah? In order to have tumah you have to have a functional clee and here you don't have that anymore because you've ruined the bell by taking the clapper out. So Abaye answered because was. since a lay person could return it to its former state we view it as if it was never really separated never really taken apart because it's so easy to put the clapper back in place Rova challenged Abaye's position from both a Mishnah and a Breitah in Kalim, from which he proves that according to Rashi once you have taken apart the clapper and the bell they're no longer are considered to be a whole clee because you've ruined or taken away a part of the clee and that shows you that even if you can put it back together it's still considered rendered ocle or no longer a cleat once the clapper has been removed from the bell whereas the biotosofo just suggests that until you replace the clapper into the bell we don't assume that they are considered to be an entity that the tuma is unified between them, and therefore only the clapper can become to mate, not the hollow bell, unless they are put back together. And so you see that the ability to put it back together is not sufficient. For that reason, Rover rejects a baye and makes the following suggestion, which is, uh, oy, la, kisho, gabi, You have the ability to use the bell, even without a clapper, by using something externally to hit on the bell and make the noise that it did beforehand. So even without a clapper, the bell can still function in a similar fashion that it did originally. and that's why why it still is Mikabutuma. Rashi summarized the Gemaras that we had seen until and all the bright by telling us that there are three types of bells. There's a bell for a behemah, there's a bell for a gadol, person who is older, and there is a bell for a katan. As far as the bell of a behemah, irrespective of whether it never had a clapper in it, or whether it lost its clapper, it is always tahor, because there's no such thing as a tachshit for a behemah, and since it's not a klimasit. There's nothing functional about it at this point in time, and obviously the animal itself is not going around ringing or banging on that bell to make noise, so therefore it's always tohore. For a gadol, it's the opposite way around. It's always to made the bell. That's whether the bell had a clapper originally and lost it, or whether it never had a clapper at all, and that's because people who are older wear these things in a decorative fashion. They wear them as jewelry. They wear them as accessories to their clothing, and therefore their tuma whether they have a inbal, whether they have a clapper in them, whether they don't have a clapper in them, whether they did have a clapper and they lost it, no matter what it is, tamay. The distinction that the Gemara made here with regards to whether the clapper in or not, as Rashi notes of here, only refers to the bell of a katan. And that is when the katan has a clapper inside of it, then that is considered to be tamay, because then it's functional and it's a tachshit. So too, if the bell originally had a clapper in it and then lost the clapper it still would have a din of Tumah because it could still function by having the child play with it, bang it, or make the noise. The only time it'll be Tahor is when the bell was originally made without a clapper in it. And that's the distinction there between the Katan, between when it is Tahor, when it is Tameh, and the difference between whether, even if when its clapper is taken out, it still is Tameh. So that's how Rashi summarizes everything we've seen until now. And the Gemara says, We have the following Machloket Amuraim, which is, The reason the bell retains its status as a clee, even after the clapper is taken out, is for the same reason that Robo suggested before, which is that you can use something externally, you can use some piece of pottery or hard object to bang the bell on the outside and still have its original function. Rabbi Yochanan because you have the ability to use it as a sippy cup or a small cup for a young child to drink from. So it has some usage even after the clapper is taken out of it. Now, according to this, we have three answers as to why the bell retains its Tumah. There's a Baye who says, because you can put it back together. There is Rabbi Yosif, Rabbi Khanin, and Rabbi Yochanan, one who says that it's because externally you can bang on it, and Rabbi Yochanan who says that because you can give it to a Tinok to drink. Between them, the big naf kamino is that according to Abaye, both pieces of the bell will be mekabul tumah. And that is because both the clapper and the bell itself are still considered to be a single unit because a layperson can put it back together. For that reason, each independent part will retain its status as a kli and therefore be mekabul tumah. According to Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Chanina and Rabbi Yochanan, the only part that retains its status as a kli is the bell itself, the clapper, Is not functional and is not longer part of the story here anymore. The only thing that retains Tuma is the bell itself. That's a big nafkamina between Abaye and Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Yosi Brochanina. The Balei Atosafot on the position of Rabbi Yochanan question how is it possible that the usage of the bell to give a drink to a little baby could make it into something that is Tamei. He says, don't you need to be Miyachid? You have to designate something for a particular purpose before it becomes the utility of such a clee. And if you did such, of course it would be tuma because now you've made it or changed it into a different function. So if you originally thought about giving it to a tinok, then even Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chanina would agree that it is tamay because it had that function from the outset. And if it did not have that function from the outset, then how is it that the conversion of it into this drinking cup suddenly makes it into something that can be mekabel tumah or something that retains its tuma, if you were never meyachet, if you never designated it for that particular purpose. So the Baaliyah Tosafot, in order to resolve that problem, says that Rabbi Yochanan really still relies on a Bale. And that is that a Bale said that it was easy to put the bell back together. Since it was simple for a layperson to reconstruct the bell, what Tosafot says is, the alternative usage of giving a drink to a tinok is a bridge or a stopgap solution to keeping it as a kli. Since in the interim stage, while the clapper is not there, you can use it to give a drink to a tinok, plus, since you could put the clapper back in very easily, that is why it retains its shame to even without being miyached, even without designating the item for that particular purpose. And that's what the Bali say over here. Since ho'yo gamur. Over here, since in the beginning it was a full-fledged kli, a bell. And since today, if you wanted to, after the clapper fell out, any lay person could put it back together, it landed Maymar. We have to say that since there is a small functional utility to this item, even without the clapper, it retains or sustains its status as a kli, even if you did not designate it for that particular purpose. So that's how the Balei Atosafot explain it, and they say that Rabbi Yochanan is really resting on the shoulders of Abaye. Other Yishunim, like the Ritva and the rashmo, disagree, and say that it has nothing to do with Abaye, but even if it only could be repaired or replaced by a craftsperson, it still would have this status of Tumah, and that the tziruf between the ability to restore the bell to its former state, even if it can't be done by a layperson, even if it can be done by a craftsman, plus the fact that it can be used now for tino, those two items combined, make it that it retains its shame, kli. So That's in terms of the din of kli, or why, according to Rav even if you don't designate it for that purpose, it still has consideration as a kli, Going to buy because of a buy that a lay person can put it back together, or going to the because a craftsman could put it back together. And that's enough together with the fact that you could use it to feed or give to drink a tin those would cause it to retain its shame Kli. Now the Gemara asks the very obvious question here, which is, doesn't Rabbi Yochanan require that when a Kli is in function or utilized for a particular purpose, in order for it to retain its tuma or sustain its shame Klee, it would have to continue to function like the original purpose of the Klee. If you repurpose the Klee, then it now becomes a new Klee. But, if you use it for some semblance of the original purpose, then you can claim that it is still the same cle as it was before. And therefore, the tuma does not depart, or the shame cle does not depart from this item. Over here, you're moving from utilization for sound, ringing a bell, to giving a teen oak to drink. So, the utility that you have from it now has nothing to do with the original purpose that you put the bell together. And therefore, how could it be that that's sufficient grounds for us to say... That it retains its shame cli, and it still would be tamay, or be Mikabel tumah, because it has its original shame kle with it. Vatanyo! Don't we have a bright that speaks about tumat midras? Tumat midras is the tumah from individuals who have tumah that's yotse mi gufan. Like a zav, zavah, anida, mitzora. All of those individuals have tumat, mishkav, moshav. If they sit on something, if they lay on something which is broadly known as tumat midras, Those items become Tamei, even if they don't come into direct contact with the item, simply that they sat on a number of items that were below them, everything below them becomes Tamei. Similarly, when they lay on something, everything below them becomes Tamei, as if they touched that item. So it says in the bright of a Chol Asher Yeshe Valav. Any kli upon which they sit. Yochol. You would think that anything they sat on would have this status. Kafasa'a. You take a dry measure of a sa'ah ve'yashavaleh. You flipped it over and then you sat on it like a stool or like a chair. Kafat tarkav. Or you took a tarkav. Tarkav is half a sa'ah. Sa'ah is six kav. A tarkav is three kav, and it's constructed of a contraction of tray and kav. Two and one more kav makes it three kav, half the size of a sa'ah, but also another dry measure. You flipped it over ve'yashavaleh, and then you sat on it. You would think all these things would be Tamei Tumat Midras. The Zav, or wherever the individual is who is Tamei, that would cause Tumat Midras, sat on the item. So why shouldn't the item become Tamei? Tamad Lomar, Asher Yeshev alav. The Torah says, V'chokli, Asher Yeshev alav, that Asher Yeshev alav, means, me Shem Yuchad only something that's designated for sitting on. Yatzazeh, excluded from is this item, Amod But we tell the person to get off of it so we can use it for its primary purpose. The primary purpose of a Sa'ah, the primary purpose of a tarkab, is for measuring, it's for dry measures. Just because somebody flipped it over and sat on it, doesn't make it into a chair, doesn't make it into something that's Meqabu Tumat Midras, because if the person does do that and sit on it, we say to him, excuse me, can you please get up, we need to use it to use it as a measuring cup, or to use it as a measuring tool. And because of that, it does not, or it is not, Mikabel Tumat Midras. Rashi over here makes a number of points, the first of which is, what is the limud from the Pasuk? He says that there's some people that suggest it comes from the duplication of the word Yeshiva in the Pasuk. Rashi rejects that because we use that limud for something else. Rather, he says that it has to do with the usage of the word Yeshev. It does not say in the Pasuk Chokli, Asher Yeshavalav, any clue that he sat on in the past, but rather, Asher yeshevalav, any clue that he sits on, which is written in the present tense, almost like a present perfect, which is that it continues or continuously is in function to be sat on. And that's how Rashi says we learn out the fact that it has to be something that is designated for sitting on and continuously used in that manner because it uses the present tense of the form, shave, And for that we learn that only something that's designated for that purpose and is used and utilized in that way will be mikabotumat dress. It has another purpose, and just been appropriated or repurposed to be used as a seat now. It will not be Mikabel Tumat Midras. So now Rashi then says that there are two dinim that come out of this in terms of Tumat Midras. The first of which is that up front, in order for something to be to mat Midras, it has to have this quality about it, which is that the item is a functional seat, some that you normally sit on or something that you normally lay on. So in order to even make Tuma Kabbalah Tumah up front, it must have that status. The second thing Rashi points out is that if something originally had the status of something that you sat on, or you laid on, if there was a piece of cloth, it was something bigger, and then for whatever reason, that was changed. It got cut in half, it became too small to serve in that function, it will also lose its Tumat Midras. Now Tumat Midras is a higher level of Tumah, by which there can be conveyance, of Tumav from, for instance, the Zav, to the item, even if he doesn't come into contact with it, and it also renders the item at the level of tumah and Abha tumab. On the other hand, if it's not Tumat Midras, then it would only be Tumat Magai, it would drop down a level of Tuma to possibly a Rishon Tuma, maybe even lower, although for a clay Rishon Tuma is the last level, depending on what the item is that we're speaking about. So, because of that, Rashi says you have two dinim. One dinim is that up front, it has to be Royla Midras in order to be Meqabu Tumah. Number two is, if it was Roy the Midras, and then that was taken away or destroyed somehow, then that also loses its Tumat Midras and drops down to a level of Tumat Maga. That's a suggestion of the Gemara. Just like we do that by Midrasot, so too we would do the same thing by Tumat Amay. And that turns out to be a Machloket amuraim. Omer, umrim, we say that by tomat midras v'eno meim mate, amod venasem lachtenu doesn't have application by tomatamet. The other end, Rabbi Yochanan Amar afomer betamaymet amod venasem lachtenu. Yochanan says that even by tomatamet we do say or we do apply amod venasem lachtenu. So according to Rashi, what that means is Rashi claims that the question of the Gemara then is based on that second part of the statement, which is that, just like by the zab we say, amod v'nasem Why don't we say the same thing with regards to Tumat Hamait? By Tumat Hamate, why don't we say that something that is designated for a particular purpose, and then, if it is repurposed, it will no longer be Mikabul Tumah. Rashi says up front, you can't claim that it won't be Mikabul Tumah, because you're going to say then, that only things that are designated for the dead individual are Mikabul Tumah, there's no such restriction in the Torah, no such limitation in the Torah. The Torah says anything that's a kli and and it's a functional kli with utility to it, can be mekabo tuma Tame. So that can't be a limitation in the upfront tuma. It is only a limitation that the Gemara is suggesting now in the back end, which is that once something becomes Tame, if it was functional in a certain way, if you take away that function, then we say, let's go back to its original function. And if you can't go back to the original function... It should no longer be Tamei Tumatmei, just like something that was originally designated for Midrash that lost that ability to do that. For instance, it was a large piece of cloth, and then it was torn down into pieces that are too small for Midrash. There's no longer any Tumat Midrash, even though it was a Tamei already. So do over here, with regards to our bell. If the bell was already Tamei up front, and now you have it lost its clapper, so it's no longer functional like its original purpose, and you say, okay, we can give it to the little kid to drink from, That's fine, but why don't we just say, go back to its original purpose. You go back to original purpose, that which to give a drink to the child with it does not change the status of the fact that it's lost its former status, lost its former utility and therefore it should no longer be considered a clee, and the Tumat mate should not have application to this. Whereas Tosafot feels that the question comes from the original statement of the Baita, because he says, according to Rashi, the core part of the question is missing here, because the Baita they quoted is speaking about Tumat midras from the outset, not ridding oneself or changing the status of Tumat midras to some other Tumat. And so they're, Ikhar chaser Therefore the Baitos would say the question is from the fact that up front, tumat It's not relevant when it comes to something that has a different function, and you come and sit on it. So, too, what they're suggesting now is, maybe when you repurpose a clee, when it was originally a bell, and now you're trying to give it, or use it as a cup for a drink, why don't we say the same thing? Let's go back to its original purpose. That's what it was designated for. Since that's its designation, therefore... Since it doesn't work like that anymore, because the clapper is missing, it'll be tahor. And so the Gemara's suggestion, according to that, is that Rabbi Yochanan would say, just like by Tumat Midras, there is no Tumat Midras from the outset. When it's an object where we say, let it function in its primary purpose, so do over here. Maybe there should be no Tumat mate with regards to the bell, because it no longer functions like its original function. The problem, obviously, is that Rabbi Yochanan makes it clear here, that you need to have something have this similar function to its original utility in order to maintain its Tumah or to be mikabo Tumah. And that's not the case over here, because he's making a suggestion that you're switching from a bell to a cup for a young child. So that would be a stira in the position of Rabbi Yochanan. And the answer is Epoch Kamaita. Flip the original positions. The original positions means the machlok between Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi and Rabbi Yochanan. And Rabbi Yochanan will be the one who agrees with Ravah and says that because you can clap it with a external item, that the bell retains its original status and is Tamei or can be Mikavl And Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi will be the one that says, Since it maintains a semblance of utility, even though it's not like the original utility, that's enough to keep the shame clean on it. Why did you flip Rabbi Yochanan's position when he argued on Rabbi Yosef Why did not you flip Rabbi Yochanan's position when he argues on Rabbi Lazar? How do you know which one is the right position for Rabbi Yochanan? And how do you know which one is the incorrect one to flip it with the other party that argues with him? Because we have another source that tells us Rabbi Yochanan believes for tuma an object must maintain... Or retain some semblance of its original utility in order for it to maintain a shame clee or to still be tamay. An example is from the Mishnah in Kalim, the T'Nan. Sandal shel shel if you have a shoe, like a horseshoe, a shoe for an animal that's made out of metal. Now, there is a gearsaw in the Mishnah, but it says Sandal shel of a non-kosher animal. It's interesting because kosher animals have split hooves. Therefore, the shoe for an animal, that is a kosher animal, would be split in the middle and then wouldn't have the functions we're going to see later. Only an animal that doesn't have a split hoof might possibly have, not like today, where we have horseshoes that are the shape of a horseshoe but it seems like it was a whole plate of metal that went on the bottom, and that would be more along the lines of what's being suggested here, and so therefore, it might be true that it's only by Behemah tamei, not by Behemah Torah, that we speak about these types of shoes. So that is Tamei. The says, Lamai if it's no longer a shoe of an animal, then what is it useful for? I mean, as a shoe of an animal, then it's simply a clay for the behemah. And a clay behemah would not be mikabel tumah. And we also said, ain't takshit behema. There's no such thing as jewelry or decorative items for a behema. So that's certainly not what's making it tamil here. When you're in battle and you need to grab some water, you can use it to scoop up water... And to drink from it, it must have had some sort of receptacle in the middle. Again, speaking of ankosh animal, is a plate of metal that went on the foot. There might have been some area where you could use it for drinking from. You <speaking in Hebrew> could use it to anoint oil with it during the battle. <speaking in Hebrew> he can borrow it When he's running away in the battle and he needs to move fast, he can use it to run on top of the thorns and the thistles and not hurt his feet, so he can put it on as a shoe for himself as well. So you see here that the reason that it's Tameh is because it has function for the human being. Now the examples given by Rav and Rabbi Chanina are functions that have nothing to do with the original utility of the item. The utility of the item is a shoe and you're now repurposing it either for drinking or for anointing oneself. And that's considered to be okay to make it into a But Biochanan does not accept that and says it has to be repurposed into a shoe for an individual. Once it's been repurposed for an individual, then it becomes mekaboo tuma. Tosafot over here says, wait a minute, if you repurpose it as a shoe, a shoe can be mekaboo tuma tumat midras. So why are we only speaking about tumat ameit over here? This now becomes something where it has tumat midras because you rest your feet on it. And uh, therefore, we should be speaking about much higher levels of Tumat, Tumat midras, and not just Tumat So, Although Tosval doesn't answer the question, there are Achronim that make the suggestion that there is a distinction by midras, as we saw before, that something has to be designated fully for that purpose in order to be considered in the world of Tumat midras. And just because one individual uses it in that manner, especially here where it's an unusual or emergency situation, where he uses it like that, That's not sufficient grounds to make it into Tumat midras and assume that it takes on this shoe form for human beings because it's not something where it's usually used in that manner. Tosavot also asks if it's sufficient here to make something tame because it was a shoe for an animal and now you drink from it during the battle and that's enough to make it into a kli that can be Kabo Tumah, then why don't we say the same thing by a bell that never had a clapper in it? If it never had a clapper in it, then you could use it for drinking and that should be sufficient grounds to make it into something that is tumah. So toastman answers that, lemar, that when it comes to the animal's shoe, there, the original intent is for the animal's shoe, but in the back of your mind, you think about the possibility that it could be used in battle in an emergency situation. So that is considered up front. By a bell, nobody considers up front that that's going to be a cup, that's going to be used to feed a tinog, And therefore, it's something that is totally outside the realm of the function or utility of the bell. And that's why it's not sufficient grounds to make it tame, even if it was made without a clapper up front. Other achonim suggest that the difference is that by the bell without a clapper, that's not a clee that reached Gemara Malocha, never reached its final stage where it was a finished clee. And therefore, you can't say, though, it has another purpose and then, then makes it into a cle. It never reached the status of a cle or its original utility. Here, by the shoe of the beima, it reached its full utility, which was that it was going to be used for shoe of the Now, if it has other purposes to it as well, that will be sufficient grounds to allow it to continue to be a cle or to give it to ma, because it was a full-fledged cle. It's not just a clee that didn't reach its final stage. So now the says, My Ben Rav, the Rabbi Chanina. What's the nafkamina between Rav and Rabbi Chanina? Ikebanayu demois. The difference between them is if the, the shoe is dirty or disgusting. According to Rabbi Khanina, nobody's going to drink water from this item in a battle because the shoe of a beymah is disgusting and dirty. Whereas Rav believes that people in an emergent situation would use it for that. He also believes that Rabbi Khanina is wrong because Nobody is anointing themselves with oil during a battle. That's not the type of activity that you engage in, and therefore that's not sufficient grounds to make it into something that is tamay. Rashi goes on to say that that distinction also exists between Rav and Rabbi Yochanan, which is that Rav believes that when it is ma'us, you still might use it for drinking water, as Rabbi Yochanan would not think that you could use it for water, but he also agrees with Rav that you don't anoint yourself during the battle. And therefore Rabbi Yochanan has the opinion that it has to be that you would use it as an escape shoe, and that's why it's Mikabel Tumah. But if you explain the Grashid, then according to the Chazanish, that takes away the proof from the Mishnah that Rabbi Yochanan really believes that you need Me'in Malachto, because Rabbi Yochanan could be just saying this because it was Ma'us, he believes that Rob's wrong, and he thinks because of not anointing oneself during the battle, that's also not a good answer, and he gives his answer, but had it not been Ma'us, had it not been disgusting, he would agree with Rob that drinking from it would have been sufficient. And then you have no proof that Rabbi Yochanan believes me'im So in that's what the Shah says the Gemara just did now, which was that the Gemara just rejected this view that Rabbi Yochanan thinks that it's me'im It's very hard to say because then the next line of the Gemara doesn't make sense because we'll see in a second that Rabbi Yochanan clearly requires something to be me'im ha rishona. And so therefore the Chazanish says that the Marsha's answer is not understandable, that he thinks that the Gemara now rejected this view that Rabbi Yochanan needs mei malakhto So he suggests against Rashi over here that everybody agrees to Rabbi Yochanan's position, and Rav would agree with Rabbi Yochanan, unlike what Rashi suggests is that there is a difference of opinion. And then Rav and Rabbi Khanina are just simply coming to say that even if Rabbi Yochanan's reason is not true, there are other reasons that could make it Tameh. And when would Rabbi Yochanan's position not be true? That's the next nafkamino in the Gemara. But the difference between ben Rabbi Yochanan and the Rabbi Hanina, the menachim between them is the yakir, if it's heavy. If the animal's shoe is very heavy, then it's not a great vehicle for using it as an escape, because it's going to slow you down, and you're not going to be able to move with it. So in that case, Rabbi Yochanan would say that it's not tame. Rabbi Chanina would say that you could still use a heavy item like that for anointing oneself. And that would be the way that the Chazanish learns here, is that everybody agrees, like Rabbi Yochanan, that if it is used as a shoe, then that is good, that it makes it to its tamay. Their disagreement is when it's too heavy to use as a shoe, does it still have another purpose that would then continue to make it tamay? And Rav and Rabbi Khanina state their opinions. And in that way you avoid the problem of Rabbi Yochanan sounding like he doesn't require Meim malachto because that is fundamental to his position over here, and he's not dis- just disagreeing because it's Ma'us in this case, or because you don't believe that you put oil on in the middle of a Milchama, that's why he came up with that answer, no, it's fundamental that he believes that it has to be malachto, and that's why the Gemara was forced to say, that Rabbi Yochanan's position that we started out with today, needs to be flipped to Rabbi Yosi to have Rabbi Yochanan be consistent that only when it's Meim malachto rishona. Does something retain its Tumah? Now the Gemara continues, below. be shel zahav. Rashi on the Mishnah spoke about an irshel hazahav being something like a brooch of some sort. The Rebbeinu Tam over here disagrees and says that it's not what Rashi described as a nushka, but it's more like a crown-like golden yushalayim that had the walls and the towers of yushalayim on it. And Rebbeinu Tam proves that from the Gemara in Sotah that discusses it. Even though that Gemara says that they put a Takana in place, that one is no longer allowed to wear a, a Yusuf Al-Zahav after Churban the Rabbeinu Utam solved that problem by saying that's only true by a Chatan and Kala. By a bride, is that true? because it's too much Simcha, it's too high a point of celebration in the face of Churban But regular people that are wearing this as a piece of jewelry, that's not considered to be too big a Simcha or too much decoration. In the face of Chorban Abayit. So Rashi and the Tosafot here argue exactly what this Irshel Zahav is. And the Gemara might be Irshel Zahav. What is this Irshel Zahav? Rabbi Bachana Rabbi Yochanan, Yerushalayim did the Havah. It is the Yerushalayim of gold, meaning that it's some portrayal of Yerushalayim with its walls in a golden form. Rabbi Kiva, the like Rabbi Kiva made for his wife. The Gemara here is referencing to the story in the Gemara Nidarim and also to both where... After getting married, Rabbi Akiva and Rachel are so poor that they're living in a barn. And while living in the barn, all the straw from the barn gets stuck in his wife's hair. And he's picking out the straw from their hair and says to her romantically, if I could afford it, I would buy you an shell zahav to replace all the straw that's in your hair. And eventually Rabbi Akiva is successful does become wealthy and does buy an irshel Sahab for his wife, which then others wanted to copy or wanted for themselves because they saw that as the gold standard for jewelry that a husband gives to one's wife. So that's the like Gemara references to it. Now, Tarabanan, Lotetzei Shab A woman may not go out with this piece of jewelry. Ta, chatat. Rabbi Meir. The mayor says if she goes out with it, then she's a chatat. Because it's considered to be a masui, it's considered to be a burden or something that she's carrying, not a tachshit. Question is, why is it not considered to be a tachshit? So well, the Rasha here has a huge khidish, which is that because the Chachamim, as we saw in the Mishnah, said that you can't wear it anymore on Shabbat, then it turns out to be no longer a tachshit, a piece of jewelry, because of the Chachamim zisur. And once it no longer is a piece of jewelry, then it becomes a masui. And that's why you have a chatat, which is somewhat of circular logic, because the Chachamim are creating it to be a chatat, when it was only Xerat Chachamim, plus there's a Mishnah coming, which seems to indicate otherwise with regards to the Sandal, and therefore they reject this view of the Rashash. On the other hand, the Rashba and the Tzvah of the rush explain that it's not considered to be a Tachshit because it's so heavy. It's a big gold item, and it weighs a tonne, and people don't wear it for a tachshit, they don't wear it as jewelry, they simply wear it to demonstrate their status socially or for wealth. And therefore it was not considered to be a normal type of tachshit, and that's why Rav Meir thinks it's a masoi and yor chayav achatat. Momri, which is the position that we have in our Mishnah, Lotei say that you shouldn't go out with it, but you are to stop, Tura. If you go out, you're Tura, midoraita, but it's Asur, midorabhanan. Rebileh Ezeh Omer, Yotza a woman can go out, no problem with the ears, she'll have, even on Shabbat. without any questions. But So what's the machloga here? Rabbi Mir Masuihu, as we mentioned, Meir believes that it's a burden, it's something that's heavy. It's not a takshit, it's not jewelry, and that's why it's a problem. takshito. They think that it is a piece of jewelry, but the problem, like many of the things in our Mishnah, is She'll take it off to show off to her friends, and she'll end up carrying it. What type of woman goes out with a Yerusha But Who wears an Isha Zahav? It's a woman of stature, a woman who's very wealthy. And a woman of that stature doesn't need to show off to her friends her wealth. It's a part and parcel of who she is. And therefore, she doesn't need to demonstrate it by taking it off and displaying it to others, or simply wearing it is enough, and therefore we don't have to worry about her taking it off, and then for that reason, Rabbi believes that you can even go out to Khathila with it, because only certain type of women wear it, and those women that do wear it aren't going to take it off. So now the book continues, it says, that Khalilah, which is a type of metal plating that the woman used to wear on her forehead, that extended from one ear to the other ear, it's similar to the tzitz of the Kohen Gadol, so a woman who wears a clila, Rabasar, says it's problematic, shmuel shari. And shmuel says it is mutar. Now, the Gemara is going to qualify their statements, but shmuel's saying that it's mutar, Seems strange. We just brought a machloket tanaim with regards to this matter. With regards to this matter on Hiroshel Zahav. And we've seen other machlokot in the Tanaim as to whether we worry about a woman taking something off and showing it off or not. Why is Shmuel taking a position on this matter and being matirit in the face of the Chachamim who are osir? For that reason, the bali of Tosavot over here, Omeri, shari Shmuel hocha. Shmuel is only matir with regards to the Klila. And so too, Rabbi Eliezer, who we saw before, was only Matthew with regards to an ear, and that is because not all women went out with it, only people of stature, only women who were very wealthy, wore these items. And so Tosut says, Any other jewelry, even though a woman who's wealthy wouldn't go around showing it off or taking it off for others to see, nevertheless, she's captured in the low plug that women can't go out with jewelry because some women take it off. So if it's jewelry that's worn both by wealthy women and ordinary women, then nobody can wear it, because even though the wealthy women don't take it off, there's a low blow. What Tosavot is suggesting over here is that the year shall have for Rebbe and the klila for Shmuel, for items that were worn only by wealthy women. And now that's the question here. When you have something that's only worn by wealthy women, do we then have a Zerah, maybe they'll take it off and show it off? Or because women of that stature don't do that, so we're not gozer in those cases, and that way Shmuel not really taking on all these other tana'im that disagree, or the rabbanan who suggests that there is gozer the rabbanan. Because what he's suggesting is it's uniquely associated with these particular items for Rabbi Lazar, the Yerushalayim for Shmuel the klilah, and it seems like Shmuel would agree by the Yerushalayim to the position of the rabbanan, and that is only because these are items that are solely worn by very wealthy women, and therefore. Maybe they have a different status than normal jewelry that's worn by all types of women. So Nagmar says, Daniska, this type of plating or forehead ornament that went from ear to ear, that's made out of a metal plate, Everybody agrees. That means Rav and Shmo both agree that that's problematic and women cannot wear that. Kiplige, they only argue, Darukta. When it's made out of rope, as Rashi says over here, it's, it looks like it's a twisted rope that has gold inlay and precious jewels that are put on it that the women wear across their forehead. So when it comes to something that is metallic, everybody agrees that that's significant enough that a woman would take it off and show it to her friend. And they argue about the a rope to marsavar, and the reasoning behind that is because everybody agrees by the metallic plating, if that was what she wore, she would take that off and show it to her friends. It's the question is, by the rope, what do we consider to be the ikar, the primary object here? Marsabar Rob believes a niska ikar, that even though it's made out of rope, the metallic inlay or the gold inlay and the stones are what make it significant, and therefore it's like metal, and it has the same din as the metal. My Ben Shmol believes a ikar, that the twisted rope or the strap that she wears across her forehead is what is the significant item, and therefore it's not significant enough that she's going to go and show it off to her friends. Ravashi matni lukula. Ravashi says the differentiation between Rav and Shmuel to the Kula side, which is, everybody agrees that if it's the twisted rope or it's a band that goes across her forehead, that's mutar, because women don't take that off to show off to their friends. Where they argue is only in the metallic band across the forehead. Mar Savar Rav believes, that maybe she'll take it off and show it off to her friends, and then she's going to carry it and reshute the Rabbim. Mar and lo. Who goes out with this type of forehand band is an Yishach HaShuvah, a woman of stature, a woman of significant social standing. Yishach HaShuvah, Loshavah Mechaviyah, and women of that standing don't go showing off their jewelry or that which they wear to other women, and therefore we don't have to worry about it. That goes back to what we saw in the Tosafot, that Shmuel believes that this is a unique item worn by just wealthy women, and therefore there's no reason to be gozer over here about them taking it off because of a low plug. You told us in the name of Rav that a klila is allowed. Rav Yosef fell ill during his lifetime and forgot much of the Torah he had learned when he was younger. And so we find many times when he's learning with Abaye and with others that they remind him of things that he said before he fell ill. And that's what seems to be happening over here. He's reminding him, he says, you told us in the name of Rav that a klila is shari. So now... Because of that statement now they bring a story that involves Rav and in a Klila, which is Rav, Arika le Narda Umitla. There was this really of individual that came to Narda. He is very tall and he is limping. The and he was Doresh klila Shari. He says that wearing a klila is totally fine. Amar arika de Itla Rav thinks in his mind who's a very tall individual that limps, and that's a big chacham, has to be Levi. So Levi was a Talmud Mufak of Rabi. The Gemara tells us in a number of places that Rabi held Levi in very high esteem and it was his major Talmud. He also got himself into a little trouble because he said some things that maybe were not so appropriate to Shamayim. And he also performed a very difficult maneuver in front of Rabi. And the Gemara tells us in Gemara and Sukkah and Tanit that both of those items caused him to fall and injure himself while he was doing that manoeuvre in front of Rabbi, and that's why he was limping. So now Rab concludes from the fact that Levi has now come out to bavel that Shramina Rabbi Afis, that Rabbi must have passed away. and the Rosh Hashiva is now Rabbi Khanina, Rabbi Khanina Barchama. Levi the Matev Levi no longer anybody to hang out with. And that's why he came here. mar so says, "How does he know that that's the case?" Dimanach dafshed Rabbi Chanina. Maybe Levi's chavruta Rabbi Chanina Barhamah passed away. Rabbi Aphis can you call him Goyen? Rabbi Aphis is still the Rosh Hashiva. And Levi didn't have anybody to learn with. And that's why he came here. mar says, "Zemiita the Rabbi Chanina shachiv." If Rabbi Chanina had passed away, Levi's chavruta. Levi, le to Rabbi Hafiz, would have subjected himself to the authority of Rabbi Afis, and he wouldn't have come. And that is because, as Rashi explains over here, it's based on the Gemara in Ketubot and Kuf Gimel, where Rabbi, on his deathbed, is giving his last will and testament, and he calls in all different parties to tell them what he thinks, or what should happen afterwards. In terms of the appointment of who should be the Rosh Shiva. He says that I want Rabbi Hanina Bar-Chama to become the Rosh Hashiva. Rabbi Hanina Bar-Chama was supposed to become Rosh Hashiva after Rabbi's passing, but he was too much of a an none and he knew that Rabbi Aphis was older than him. And since Rabbi Aphis was older than him, he didn't want to be Rosh Hashiva before him. So therefore he allowed Rabbi Aphis to become the Rosh Hashiva while he waited. Now, because he was greater than him in chokhma he didn't feel right being inside the Beit Midrash because it would have been a challenge to Rabbi Yafis. So therefore Rabbi Chanina remained outside the Beit Midrash. Levi kept Rabbi Chanina company outside the Beit Midrash because he was his Kabrutah and he had respect for Rabbi Chanina. He stayed out with Rabbi Chanina. So that's the background to the story over here. And what they're saying now is it must be that Rabbi Yafis passed away and now Rabbi Chanina is the Rosh Hashiva. And now Levi has nobody to learn with and Levi can't go into the Beit Midrash. That is because Rashi says over here, the age hierarchy of these individuals was that Rabbi Affis was the oldest, then Levi, then Rabbi Chanina. So Rabbi Chanina gave up his position to Rabbi Affis, even though he had more gadut in Torah, because Rabbi Affis was older than him, and therefore he deferred to him, and he became the Rosh Hashiva. So Rabbi Chanina then moved to the outside, waiting in a sense to become the Rosh Hashiva, and Levi joined him outside. Now, if Rabbi Chanina had passed away and Levi lost his chavruta, he would go back into the Beit Midrash, because Rabbi Affis was also older than Levi. And so that wouldn't have been a problem. The problem arose when Rabbi Affis passed away, and now Rabbi Hanina goes to be the Rosh Hashiva. Rabbi Hanina was both younger than Rabbi Affis, was also younger than Levi. And so Levi didn't feel that it was right, or didn't feel appropriate to go into the Beit Midrash, or to subject himself to the, the ruling, the authority, ...of Rabbi Hanina Barchama, and that's why he leaves to go to Bavel, And then he reunites with his old buddy, Rav. Rav also learnt in front of Rabbi for many years. And now Levi, who learnt there, now rejoins Rav, becomes very close with Shmuel's father. And then Shmuel becomes a Talmud Khaber of Levi, and that's where we see many times in the Gemara, Levi versus Shmuel, Levi and stories about Levi and Shmuel, Levi and Rav that are involved in these situations what the standing of Levi is, is in Naloha, is not so clear, their album gives him a lot of authority, and Paskin's like Levi, whenever he argues on Rab and Shmuel, because he was older, and he was a Talmud Muvak of Rabbi. So the Gemara here says, that when Rob heard that, this individual was tall and limping, came in, he says, it's got to be Levi, and if Levi's here, that means that he lost his Chabrusa Rabbi Chanina. and the only way he lost his Chabrusa Rabbi Chanina is if Rabbi office passed away, and now Rabbi Chanina is the Rosh Shiva. And that's why Levi came to Bavel. And the Gemara says, how do you know that? Maybe he lost his Chavrusa, and that's it. He's coming to Bavel because Rabbi Yafis is the Rosh Hashiva. So it can't be because Levi would have not come to Bavel. He would have accepted the authority of Rabbi Yafis because Rabbi Yafis was older than him according to Rashi. Whereas when it came to Rabbi Chanina, Levi did not feel comfortable being under his authority because he was both older than Rabbi Chanina, and he was more erudite than Rabbi Chanina. So that's why he came to Bavel, and that's why Rab concluded that. Also, the other possibility is that, but two, the Rabbi Hanina it had to be that Rabbi Hanina became the Rosh Hashiva. Because Rabbi, before he passed away, said, Rabbi Hanina Barchama should be the Rosh Hashiva. The Rabbi, he'll be the Rosh Hashiva. And it says, in the Pasuk in Yehob, with regards to the Tzadikim, that when they make a decree, or when they say something, it comes true. So if Rabbi said he's going to be the Rosh Hashiva, he had to become the Rosh Hashiva. So it couldn't be that he passed away and Rabbi Hafiz was still the Rosh Hashiva because then Rabbi Khanina would never have been the Rosh Hashiva and the words of Rabbi would not have come true. And so because of that, that's why Rabbi believed that it must be that Rabbi Hafiz passed away, Rabbi Khanina is the Rosh Hashiva and that's why Levi is coming to Bavel. Now, when Levi came to Bavel, Darash Levi bin Nardah, Klila, Shari, that the Klila is Mutar to go out with. And because of that, Nafik Esrim Ba'aba Klilei Mikula Nardah. Throughout the whole Narda, 24 women came out with the Klila, with this crown jewelry, on Shabbat. Dorish Rabbah Baravua, ben Mechuzah. Similarly, Rabbah Baravua said the same thing in Mechuzah, the shari that it's muteret to wear this Klila jewelry on Shabbat. And then 18 women wearing this jewelry came out of one mavoi, one section or subsection of the city, they care out from there. It seems to be that the contrast is in the terms of the wealth, that Mechuzah was obviously a very wealthy city, where 18 women have it in a single section of the city, whereas throughout the whole Nardah, only 24 women had a klile. So That's the intent over here. The question is, how do we reconcile everything we've seen until now? That the Rabbein Hanano does by saying the following, The Kaimelon Dehu Batro. When it comes to the Machlok at Rav and Shmuel, the explanation of that Machlok, we're going to follow Rav Ashi, because he's a Batshra, he's a later Amora, And therefore, we're going to say that when it comes to metal, that's where the Machlok between Rav and Shmuel is. When it comes to a band, a cloth band, or a rope that has jewelry and metal inlaid in it, that's not going to be problematic according to everyone. And he says that since it's a Machlok at Rav and Shmuel, and we know that a Machlok at Rav and Shmuel and this is an issue of Easter, so the is like Rav. That means that metallic ones are going to be a sore. But now we have Levi and Rabba Baravua being Mater Aklila. So In order to reconcile that, they say that they must have been speaking about these rope or cloth types of bands that were muterit, even according to Rav. And in that way, you can reconcile all the opinions here. Rav paskin that it's a sore with regards to a metallic band. Ravashi tells us that Rab agrees by the rope, or the aropta, the ritsua, or the band, or the rope, that it is considered to be mutar. That's what Levi and Rabba Bar-Avua were positioning, that the klilas mutar is talking about a rope band. On the other hand, the Beit Yosef says that he thinks that the Ramah and the Rift never make such a distinction between metallic or cloth bands, and therefore he believes that when we say that Levi and Rabba Bar-Avua over here said it was mutaret, Means all types of klila were mutarit, and therefore he paskins in the Shulchan Aruch that any klila is mutarit, though the Barolocha points out that the position of the Beit Yosef here is not so simple because it's not clear that the rift really says what the Beit Yosef says, plus we know there are Beinochananel and the Rosh paskin that by metal it's a problem, and therefore the Barolocha says it's Kedai to be machmir when you're talking about a klila that's made of metal to not wear it on Shabbat. Amar Shmuel, Kamra, Shari. These types of gilded belts are mutar to be worn. Now, it seems to me that these were decorative belts, but also something that indicated your stature or status. Many times had the emblem of your social standing on it, but they were something that was worn by nobility, by kings, in order to show their standing. So, Igadamre, some say that this type of belt that we're speaking about here is Darokta, which was made out of a cloth that was gilded, or it was a twisted rope with inlaid metal and jewels. And the reason that it's mutar to wear is because Amr al-Saframi, have a talit Just like a person can wear a talit that either has gold inlaid in it, or is a golden type of talit. Even though that's not something that people normally wear, it's something reserved for the wealthy, but because people do wear it, and it is a functional type of decorative cli, then even a person who doesn't normally wear it, if they do wear it, it's still considered to be takshit or clothing for them, and therefore it's mutar for them to wear it. And similarly over here, the gilded belt, even though that's something worn by people of higher social standing, someone else wears it, it's not going to be problematic. Some say that the belt is made out of metal. And that would be similar to the belt of kings, which again was something that uh, of significant that had their emblems on it. And because of that, it was worn by those that were wealthy and kings. And if a regular layperson wears it, it will not be considered to be a masui because it is a piece of clothing for some individuals of higher standing. But because of that, it's okay for you to wear it as well. Now that's the explanation of Rashi over here, which is that which is a position that's taken in the Mishnah later on in Kufiud Aleph, other Rishonim don't love that explanation because that's only one day off in the Mishnah later on. And they suggest that the reason it's the true over here is because people don't normally take it off and display it to other people. It's the type of item that is used to hold up your clothing. And since it's holding up your clothing, people don't take it off to show it to other people because then all your clothing would drop down. So we're one of those two reasons we're not gozer, either in the case where it's made out of some sort of decorative ritua, or it's made out of metal, people don't take it off because, people don't take it off because, if then all their clothes would drop down, and it would be appropriate to do that, it'd be like getting undressed in the middle of the shuk. so people aren't going to take it off to show to others, and because everybody has the status of being al therefore it's raoi, this type of clothing for them, and therefore it's considered to be a takshit or normal clothing for them, not something that's unusual. What's interesting over here is that it's actually a machlok bishonim, as to whether we worry about men in general, taking off items to show up. Is that just a practice or a nature of women to show off their jewelry and their clothing, and then we worry about it But with men, we don't worry about that type of issue. Or does it also apply by men? So many like the Ramban bring Gemara as a proof that we do worry about by men, because over here we're talking about a camera, which is a belt that's worn by men, and we see by the answers given in the Gemara that we do possibly worry about it being taken off, had it not been for the fact that people don't take it off because their clothes are going to drop down. But had it not been for that factor, we would have assumed that they can take it off or they would take it off, and men are just as likely to show off what they're wearing that as women are. On the other hand, there the town believed that it's only something done by women, and by men, we do not have that chashash. And in defense of the Rebbeinu the ron brings over here that the reason he believes that this case is different, or how he learns that from this case, is the fact that the Gemara doesn't deal with it from the side of a tachshit, of it being a decorative item, a piece of jewelry, rather from a side of it being clothing. And the problem here is that this is a piece of clothing that's only worn by a certain very wealthy or high-standing individuals. And now we want to know, if another person or lay person wears it, what's the status of it for that person? And the Kumar's answer is that it's a piece of clothing for them, just like it's a piece of clothing for the person of high stature that wears it. But it's a question of malbush versus masui, being a burden versus clothing, not a question of jewelry. Because had it been jewelry, then it wouldn't have been an issue at all, because men don't take off jewelry to show off to others. And for that reason, the Rebbeinu Tam sees this as a proof to his position because the Gemara doesn't address it from the standpoint of tachshit, only from the standpoint of malbush. Although the Baveli Tosfos over here seem to undermine that somewhat when they say that even for women it's considered to be normal to wear this and not take it off because their clothing would drop down, implying that the belts that were spied here and the Kamara that were spied here are women's wear or not men's wear. Now the Gemara continues and says, Mai. If you have this Kamra sitting on top of a belt, what's the din? You're talking about two belts? So now the Gemara doesn't say what that means. He asks it in a rhetorical manner, but we don't know what that means. So Rashi brings from each of his Rebbeim a different explanation. According to Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yudha, he says that that means that it's a, definitely a Masui, and it's a sur. Because it's two belts. And what's the point of wearing two belts? The second belt is definitely a Masui. The other possibility he brings from Rabbeinu Alevi, where he says that it's mutar, meaning that it's another piece of clothing, so why can't you wear it? Rashi says, says that I think that the first explanation is correct, that it means that it's a sewer here, because it's extraneous. And he brings a proof from the Gemara later on in the Masechta, When you have a fire in a house, what clothing you're allowed to wear out to salvage from the fire and not be in violation of the Taknat Chachamim to take things out when there is a fire. So it has to be clothing that you would normally wear. Over there, Rashi points out that it doesn't offer you the uh, option to put on a second belt. So that shows you that the second belt is problematic. The Bayat Tosafot say that even though they think Rashi's right about the fact that it means the Isur over here, He does say that the Gemara later on does have a second belt that's mentioned in the number of clothing or items or articles of clothing that you're allowed to take out from the fire. So Tosu then makes a distinction and says that if it's a belt on top of a belt, that's what we're speaking over here, that's problematic, because that's completely unnecessary, that's just a duplication, and that's a Masuit. On the other hand, if you have a belt on one piece of clothing, They have a second piece of clothing that has another belt on top of it. That's fine. And that's what the Gemara later on is speaking about in Ketvea Kodesh, that they can salvage two belts, one belt that goes on the tunic, for instance, and another belt that goes around the coat or the jacket that you're wearing. That's fine, because each one has a purpose for the piece of clothing that's attached to, and in that way you make such a distinction. And Tosfat also points out that this is differentiated or distinct from people wearing layers of clothing to stay warm. If it's very cold outside and you wear layers and layers of clothing, that is something that is okay and not considered to be extraneous just wearing duplicate clothing because there it has purpose and it gives you the benefit of keeping you warm. But here when you have a belt on top of a belt, there's no purpose to it. It doesn't serve any utility. There's no other additional benefit by having the second belt. And for that reason, it's considered to be a Masui. Amar hi risuka. this either translated as a corset or a half jacket. I'it le'i mafrechaito shari ilo asir if it has according to Rashi over here pindatsa which are like pendants or as Rashi described over here short strings that they use to tie it very tight around the individual then it's mutar because since it's so tightly pulled around the individual there's no way that the individual is going to take it off or carry it in Rishut Rabin because both the effort to put it together and the tight fit that it has then people don't take that off they leave it on and then if it's missing those and it's worn loosely and it's like a half jacket, then it's easy to remove or easy to take it off. And then we do worry about the individual carrying it in the Rishut Rabim because it, the snaps or whatever's holding it together might break apart or loosen up and then it would fall off or you'd want to take it off. Because when it's very tight, then we don't worry about that because the pressure's on it already and it's holding tight. Nothing's going to change. It's in place. Whereas when it's loose, there's a possibility that it will loosen and fall off and then you can end up carrying it and that would be problematic in That's Rashi's view. On the other hand, the Rabbino Hanan over here says that the difference between having these stringy items on it is whether it's considered to be a takshit or a masa. They say it's a leather jacket that has tassels on it, then it's considered to be a takshitu, parish chagur shel or, some sort of leather belt or leather item that you wore. If it has these mafrachaita, which are shari because takshitu, then it's considered to be a... Decorative item. The e lo a perush, and the explanation is if it has these mafrachaita, which are chetichot yotzot, v'otfot mimenu, you have these little tassels that hang off of it. Let me know the on the right and left. That's considered to be a takshit. But if not, then it's a suir to go out with it. The Shabbat he because it's not a kli. It's not functional in any way. It's not really a malbush. And since it doesn't have that decorative quality to it, it becomes a masui. Okay, we're going to stop here by the two dots towards the bottom of Nuntet would Bet.